Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, my brother, Jeff. Jeff, how are you today? How's it going? I'm hitting the open road here. I'm in my uh, fliver, just going <laughs> down the uh, you know the country roads. Hope I don't get a flat tire or get stuck in some mud. I know. You'd get the thing with the tire where it pulls out like a big bubble on the side yeah, when yeah. you pump it. I mean, that's what happens every time, right? Yeah, I mean, that's got to happen. How about you? How yeah. are you doing? Oh, I'm ready to hit the open road because I hear it's fun to be free. It is indeed. That's what I hear, yeah. at least. You're right. Uh, yeah, we're talking world of motion. We're talking transportation. We're talking, Jeff, mobility. Mobility. Disney's mobility. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in our continuing observation of Epcot's 40th anniversary... We're going to talk about the fantastic, beloved attraction, World of Motion. Jeff, gotta love World of Motion. It's up there in the top, you know. You just get on there on a hot summer day, go around, spend some time in the air conditioning, journeying back through a world of whimsy. Great soundtrack. It had it all. Sleek vision of the future. <laughs> exactly. It, it's especially good on a hot day because, and I mentioned this on our Patreon live stream this month, you enter the building by going under a roaring curtain of air conditioning. And that was always just the best. That was so welcome. Absolutely. Just just a, a cascade of cold air, and then you were in caveman times. So it transported you back. This was a great attraction, and... A big attraction, an epic scale attraction. Yeah, I mean, they don't make them like this anymore, do they? they this was huge. And uh, so many audio animatronics, so many sets, dimensional sets, and uh, special effects. You name it. It was a tour de force, like, uh, like so many of these future world attractions. Absolutely. And... You know, we're going to talk a little bit about the development of the attraction, as we've done with some of the other pavilions, kind of how it came to be and some of the other ideas that were kicked around. And you're going to talk about GM and other transportation companies, their, their sort of presence at these kinds of exhibitions in the past. Yeah, we're going to do the same kind of thing we've been doing, where we talk a little bit about the sponsor and their history pre-Epcot and that adds a little context to the whole thing as well, too. But Disney, no stranger to, you know, the issues of transportation. Uh, it's one of, you know, the touchstones of Walt's vision of the future. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Absolutely. It's, it's funny that he started his theme park career with the wonders of the superhighway. And then by the end, he's like, cars are dead to me. Right. It must, we have mass transit and all these sort of planned communities planned around transportation. And you hear it said when they were starting to talk about Epcot right before he died, there were so many aspects of the community that they never got around to talking about. But the first thing that they were talking about was transportation. That's what really grabbed his imagination. So I have a feeling this is a topic we'll be returning to multiple times in the future on future episodes, because it's really just a core part of Disney history, real honestly. Yes, absolutely. 
So, uh, let's say we dive in. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Perhaps no other field defined Disney's mid-century golden era look at the future more than transportation, and Walt took a keen interest in looking for solutions to the growing problem of the transportation infrastructure in the United States. This would play out over his final few decades and indeed in his shift from films to themed spaces to tackling the problems of urban design that would define the end of his career. But Disney was not alone in these pursuits and indeed had partners in this effort far and wide. One of these was a future partner in Epcot, General Motors, which had looked for future solutions to the astronomical rise of the automobile throughout the 20th century. Michael Gridlock! <laughs> Gridlock? It, uh, it's this thing called the rat race. Have you heard kark, of kark, it? How many, uh, you know, like mid-century TV shows have you seen with the honk-honk <laughs> noise? <laughs> yeah, totally. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe we're, people were so upset because the horns were louder then. Gridlock. Yeah, that's true. They was like those boat horns they used. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and they didn't like sitting out in like blue smoke in yes, their face. That's true. From, that's true. Yeah. They didn't have the latest in air conditioning either. There's a lot of reasons. But uh anyway. In nineteen thirty three and thirty four at the Century of Progress exhibition in Chicago, all the major automakers showed up in grand form with huge exhibits at the fair. I can never get over the scale of this uh world's fair. It's just yeah huge buildings uh, gm was no exception their exhibit was reported to cost 1.2 million dollars and even featured an auto assembly plant that would manufacture chevrolets at the fair michael i found uh chevrolets that were made at this world's fair on, on the internet you can buy oh, one wow it's pretty cool that is really cool yeah what a pedigree get your own fliva that was made at the world's fair oh that's so cool it was clear that through the decades prior, the automobile had taken a quantum leap in technological advancement, as well as manufacturing techniques that made it more affordable for the customer. Their Hall of Progress outlined many of these improvements. But the leap in desirability and affordability left the highway infrastructure woefully behind as small highways and outdated urban planning left motorists stuck in that gridlock. The change of the coming decades would be to catch up to the demand of the American motorists. Michael, there were some real problems with American roads as I mean, it's just, I guess. Yeah. How could you predict the rise of the automobile? But uh, yeah, it's when a you good look time. at the people who would try to just do cross country car trips before the interstate system and how rickety and perilous it was to yeah. do 
in these yeah. early automobiles. It's pretty amazing. It is. It is. Well, to aid in this work, GM turned to Norman Belgetti's, an industrial designer who had been at work since the late 19-teens in designing the future. Belgetti's had started out as an art designer for theaters and film, assisting with the art direction in the landmark HGOL's futurist film, Things to Come. Mm. But it also set up shop as one of the first industrial design firms. To push this work, Belgetti's had published a book called Horizons in 1932, which addressed everything from household appliances to almost every civic and domestic space imaginable, as well as vehicles and urban design. It is a comprehensive work that laid the groundwork for a lot of Art Deco and streamlined design that would take hold in the 1930s. And incidentally, the cover resembles almost exactly the Norm Inouye Horizons logo for Future World and Epcot Center. That's very interesting. It and, is. Uh, the movie Things to Come appeared in Horizons. Exactly. So it all holds together. Think about that. It's yeah, this. A nod. This book is incredible. It has like nine story airplanes that could amphibious airplanes and, uh, you know, the airport of the future all over, over to like refrigerators and, and everything. I love it. Uh, Belgetti's was bold in his suggestions of the solutions to the problems in urban and road design and became famous for his predictions of how the city would look in the year 1960 or could look at least. His Metropolis City of 1960 model from 1936 would separate pedestrians from auto traffic and provide a blueprint for cities with more green spaces and high-rises and less intersections with an ingenious design of intersections with elaborate on-ramps and separated traffic patterns. This model would evolve into the Shell Oil City of Tomorrow, which would appear in Shell ads advocating for a new, more efficient filling stations and roadways. But Belgetti's proposals would have their biggest audience and impact at the 1939 New York World's Fair in the Highways and Horizons Pavilion, sponsored by General Motors. There, along with the usual trade show business that usually accompanies these things, such as Miracles of Refrigeration by Frigidaire and so on, which I didn't realize Frigidaire was a GM joint. Me uh, neither. I did not. But yeah, they, uh, they owned Frigidaire. Uh, there was a true hit of the fair, an attraction called the Futurama. This pavilion was over 36,000 square feet, truly massive, and the Futurama was an exhibit that would take guests into the world of 1960. Guests would board a moving chair system that was remarkably similar to the one that would be used in the Horizons Pavilion, a series of moving seats that was situated to one side of a diorama and, and it would slowly move through a series of models showing the future. And these models were extraordinary in scale and detail. It contained over 500,000 separate buildings and 1 million trees. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Huge. Usual care and precision. I know. What a cool place this was. <laughs> the Futurama. Yeah. Um, guests would begin flying high over the countryside, viewing farms, which would show the march of science and creating new modern farms with techniques to reduce loss and increase yield. The farms would connect via improved roads to a freeway system, which would be the connective tissue of the 16 minute long attraction. These highways were a revelation to guests of the fair as Bell Geddes would propose Seven lane highways and divided lanes going one way to increase safety and efficiency. Even that was 
you know, bold at the time because roads weren't divided at that time. Lanes would be divided into separate speeds of 50, 75, and 100 miles per hour. Hmm. They include lights of tubing embedded in the roads and radio control for faster self-driving cars. Intersections would have flyover lanes that could have turning at 50 miles per hour as the models gradually grew larger in the attraction, showing airports, aeration plants to clean lake water, giant hydroelectric stations, and factories. The roads would move in harmony with nature around and through mountains skirting along their edges. Guests would even pass by a model of a 1960s amusement park due to all the increasing leisure that goes on. Eventually, the highways would lead to a city of the future over giant, modern-looking suspension bridges with three levels of traffic passing on them unimpeded. The city of the future would have the highways passing throughout, allowing for separation of the pedestrian and the car. As the models increased in size, guests would eventually see what the downtown of tomorrow could look like, with various lanes of traffic moving by while pedestrian bridges and sidewalks remained separate. And as the ride ended... Guests would disembark only to see one of these intersections recreated in full scale as the post-show. Truly a brilliant concept that would leave visitors in wonder as they left the pavilion. Storefront displays and buildings housing auto show places and theaters would surround the path the guests would take out of the attraction. What a cool idea that was. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I. It's so... <sighs> You know, unfortunately, the people I would like to ask about this, none of them are around anymore. Right. But the the impact of this and some of the things you're going to talk about on Epcot attractions and on, I mean, this this is obviously, I mean, the line between this and Progress City model. Oh, yeah. Is so obvious. And you just wonder if they had that in mind. They had to have had that in mind. I would. Um, this was such an iconic a thing i mean you know that word gets used a lot but it really was I, I mean so many people saw it and it was such a revelation to people and a lot of it came true in certain ways it's uncanny really yeah absolutely it's it's really remarkable i, do, I love the idea of you exit the ride and then you're on one of the roads. That would have been a fun, a fun thing for upstairs at the carousel at disneyland yeah when uh after you saw the progress city model to, to walk through a street of progress city. Yeah. It's a real brilliant idea to have it start with, you know, a zoom out to zoom in attraction and you leave and yeah. it's completely zoomed in. Reminds me of that, that cool HBO promo. Yes. <laughs> it's brought to life. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really, really, I wish I could go see it with my own eyes. But by the end of the fair, over 5 million people had experienced the Futurama at the World's Fair. And through the notoriety of this and another book Bel Geddes published called Magic Motorways, he was asked by none other than President Franklin Roosevelt to help design the nation's interstate system. Unfortunately, like so many other visions of the future, war would pause most of these plans as World War II descended upon the U.S. shortly after the fair. Gosh, the things that may have happened, Michael. Oh, absolutely. For these freaking wars. But during this time, the imagination of the country would shrink down to the task at hand and, and the Bel Geddes star would wane. During this time, Fortune magazine would claim him as a bomb thrower whose ideas cost American businessmen billions of dollars. Oh, too great. impractical. 
Which is a real shame because, uh, you know, as Walt Disney would later say, you know, I just think the the artisan has a place at the table of uh, deciding what's next and maybe a better place than others. Yeah, absolutely. Someone with a little vision. Yes. To to kind of center you and really point out what's possible if you think beyond the moment. Right, right. Eventually, it would be up to another team of art directors and designers to capture the imagination of the American public to what could be possible in future life. And at the forefront of this was Walt Disney and his growing studio. In 1958, for his Disneyland TV show, he enlisted the singular Ward Kimball for another iconic Tomorrowland TV special called Magic Highway USA. This is truly one of the great episodes of the anthology series, and one I believe really hits at a lot of the strengths of Disney's TV offerings at the time. And it offers a well-worn and trusted formula that Disney used throughout this era and on into more recent times, which features a historical retrospective of the subject, in this case transportation, and namely road developments in America, before going into a look in the future and what could be coming. Michael, we've talked about this a lot before. This is the playbook. And uh, it's pretty successful when it's pulled off well. Yeah, it is. You never, like, I never really realized it. It, it just because growing up, you were so immersed in it. You never stopped to realize that this was a formula they were using. But, man, it works so well. It's, uh, yeah, formula for a reason. Give me more of the formula, I say. Absolutely. The past segment is all Ward Kimball. You know, I think about all the great ones, uh, Fly with Von Drake stuff and (laughs) all the man in the moon. Wacky look back at the road development in a very white focused telling of America. In fact, no mention of what happened before the Europeans got here as far as human history. I guess that isn't to be expected of a show of this era, but the show features many a historical cutout doing wacky animation with some very cool backgrounds and a lot of archival footage in the, the early days of the automobile like you would expect a lot of these scenes will be familiar to viewers and perhaps we will find out why a little later scenes like rugged individual tinkers working on automobiles and garages horses and their swift meat wagons being alarmed by the automobile a motorcycle cop and so on hmm hmm what really pops out of this special is the last segment the look into the future At first glance, a lot of this reads as a sequel to Futurama with a lot of talk of freeway design, but it is definitely updated to include a lot of the electronic development of the decades in between. This is a fascinating prediction of how driverless cars could work and customizability to user needs, which is a little prescient. Uh, The special (laughs) outlines a bit of a home of the future, which bears a resemblance to the one that was sitting in Disneyland's Tomorrowland at the time. And had a family going into town from their suburban home in style in a car that looked very Jetsony, as did much of the design. Dad, who of course was the only one working, would push a button for his destination, and his car would take off, controlled by towers manned by rugged jaw attendants who would keep tabs on every car on the highway. Dad could work from the car via video conferencing on his screen. A bit of prophecy there, for sure. When they reached the city, the car could separate, letting Dad go to his office and mom and the kids go shopping where their cars would all dock automatically for the height of convenience. We have some moving sidewalks in there too, a hallmark of the future as well. I mean, pretty cool stuff here. Yeah, very, very much so. And for people who are 
sort of latter day Disney goers, very similar to the current post show, well, descent of Spaceship Earth. Yes. With the, you know, gliding along in your own self driving car, doing your office work on your on your screen sort of deal. Very yeah. similar. And Very, also, also in Horizons. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes. Yeah, featured there as well. So some pretty intriguing and spot on. Some things that haven't happened yet, but some things that have. That's true. And some that are just absurd. like Flights uh, of fancy. Yeah. But as Ward would have it, you know. Yes. This future involved a lot of revolutions in road building as well, including graceful cantilevered roads going around mountains, something we'd see in North Carolina, visions of Linco Viaduct there, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. There were also more fantastical versions of atomic tunnel boring machines and machines that would build bridges by themselves hanging over the end as they extended the road. Roads would even go underwater to magnificent underwater cities. Indeed, it was ambitious, but food for thought for someone in 1958. But somewhere along the way, it seems Walt turned against the automobile and its problems and embraced larger forms of transportation as a solution to the urban dilemma. Uh, maybe it was his journeys to Disneyland down the new Santa Ana Freeway from Burbank. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would turn me. Yeah, certainly did when I was there. You're like, the freeway is going to be great. Oh, maybe it's not that great. Maybe not. It could be his trips to Europe, where he would see the first Alweg monorail by 1959. Disneyland had the first one in the Western Hemisphere. And from then until his death, Walt would be its biggest cheerleader. By 1964, the World's Fair was headed back to New York. And visions of the future were even grander and farther afield than just fixing roads. We were going to space! No gridlock there, and uh, no gridlock was going to keep Walt from working with big automakers, and Disney would partner with Ford Motor Company to bring the Magic Skyway to visitors in Flushing Meadows. This ride, especially since it is the only one that wouldn't make its way back to Disneyland, is pretty singular, and if I may say, somewhat bizarre. <laughs> First of yeah, all, a little bit. yeah. First of all, it bears mentioning that Ford really wanted to get people into their cars. As in 1939, their exhibit featured an attraction called The Road of Tomorrow, which was another preview of road building at that fair. Uh, this one, a half-mile stretch of circular road, kind of looks like a, a parking deck you know, spiral, where drivers would host passengers driving around the course at a thrilling 12 miles per hour. Hmm. <laughs> Here's a nice Ford, hey? I guess it was really successful. I mean, people really liked being in the Ford, so Ford needed people in Ford cars. I guess it makes sense. Got to get people in our cars. <laughs> they sell themselves. What bothers me is they passed on one of the best ideas for an attraction Disney ever came up with, the Symphony of America, which kills me. This would have put passengers in the Ford cars traveling through scenes of America Swamps of the Everglades, desert, so on and so forth, all set to classical music. It's like a drive-through circle vision. Yeah. That's what yeah been the and best. the art for this is just out of control. It yes. looks amazing. And I think this was a John Hinch project, so you know it would have been nice. Mm -hmm. uh, but for reasons, one of which being the famous See the USA in the Chevrolet, it's too much like that um, <laughs> ad campaign. They said no, which is sad. Because the story in Magic Skyway is just so strange to me, Michael. 
It really is. I don't get it. Um, yeah. It's, well, especially since, I mean, you're going to talk about it, but so many elements of it made their way into different attractions mm-hmm. over the years after. So it's just like uh, disparate scenes from different attractions just handpicked and put together in a random order. Yes. Uh, which, yeah, that does lead me to my next point. It's like it got chopped up for parts. Um, you know, of course, you had the dinosaurs, which would literally live on in on the Disneyland Railroad, but also in the Universe of Energy. Uh, similar vignettes. You had yeah. a scene of early man hunting a mammoth. Uh, of course, went to Spaceship Earth. And man inventing the wheel, which, uh, you know, a variant of that went in World of Motion. Um, from all of that, you would travel through the mists of time via very Kimbellian animation of a bunch of wheels spinning in a speed tunnel situation, which also world of motion mm-hmm. and end up in a darkly lit vision of the future with a cityscape where rockets took off overhead and cars traveled via climate controlled tubes. I don't know why roads have to be climate controlled at that point. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. It seems a little inefficient. <laughs> yes. Everything must be climate controlled. Anyway, for their part, GM had another hit at the fair to complement Disney's popular offerings in the new Futurama exhibit. This would not have the cultural impact of the 1939 version, but visitors to Epcot may find the material familiar in dealing with the city of the future, desert farming, underwater cities, and even colonies in space. Yeah, this is the one I really wish I could ask. I wish uh, George McGinnis was still around to ask about because or Claude Coates or anybody, because this Futurama 2 exhibit is basically Horizons. It's essentially Horizons, yes. Yeah. So I am so curious as to, you know, when you look at the scenes, it's just uncanny. I'm like, you know, you guys had to be aware of this. I'm sure they all went on it. I mean, I'm sure they went on it, yeah. So just how conscious and direct to lift was it? Yeah. It's... uh in some cases, very, quite literal. Well, Disney used the technology of the Magic Skyway to pioneer the people mover for Disneyland's Tomorrowland, another lift from that attraction, the world on the move in 1967, and it featured prominently along with the monorail for the plans of Walt Disney's Epcot. And by the time Walt Disney World opened in 1971, a lot of those original Epcot ideals were baked in. With roads being built to avoid intersections, parking being separated from pedestrian centers via mass transit, and monorails and later people movers galore. Disney got so much shine from this and felt so good about their solutions, they even set up their own division called Community Transportation Services in 1974 to market their people movers and transit systems to the world outside of Disney. In fact, friend of the program Frank Stanek had some dealings in that, and I would love to talk about that with him and to go into this further in detail on a later podcast. I mean, yeah, very interesting that Disney was trying to get into that sphere. And did. Yeah, and they, and they did, actually. Yeah. yeah. A lot to talk about there. There's a lot of meat left on many of these bones, but as Disney formulated what an Epcot would be after Walt, a lot of these thoughts of what the future would bring were swirling around the heads in Glendale. People movers and monorails dotted planning boards at WED for many future designs in Florida during the 70s. But even with all of this, when a transportation pavilion came into focus for what would become Epcot Center, 
Disney would borrow much from 1958's Magic Highway USA, including its director. motion story began back in 1975 with our old pal the future world theme center jeff it's the future world theme center my favorite take me the there best, you know i wish marty was around we could just tell him just, you, know, you, had, you had it man get a couple of circle visions and call it a day <laughs> yeah, just keep <laughs> updating them weekly or whatever however long. yeah exactly daily yeah what's happening today get the get 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 the footage for tomorrow guys uh, now, we've talked about this place often, so I won't get back into it here. But in this scheme, transportation would have been a pavilion featured as part of a much larger science and technology pavilion. Early development for a transportation pavilion was assigned at that time to Roger Brogy, Bob Gurr, and Dave Gangenbach. So some familiar names there. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know anything about what this original plan entailed or if it was really even a plan at all. It wasn't highlighted in any publicly released art at the time, like the agriculture-themed area that we talked about on our land episode. But if they did do any work on it, we can assume it was probably called something like the Future World of Transportation, since that's the naming convention they used for agriculture and energy at the time. Kind of cool. Also, a book like- that came out in the 80s called The Future World yeah, of Transportation. That's right. Uh, I kind of like that, too. I don't know. It's not very creative, but it's... I like simple names. The yeah. future world of blank. Huh. Yeah, know. it's a nice, nice uniformity to it. Yes, thank you. Something more recognizable started to emerge in May of 1977 when Claude Coates, ex Atencio, and Mark Davis, uh, that's a team for you, uh, mm-hmm. they began work on a new concept for the transportation pavilion. Claude, of course, was the master of vibes, and Mark crafted an array of gags some of which were reminiscent of those he had developed for the Ford Magic Skyway Pavilion at the 1964 New York World's Fair. Which I'm assuming he, you know, caveman gags, maybe caveman recostume gags. caveman gags. Exactly. Or, 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 or. Did they really make the barking seal noise like they did? In I, like- don't, I don't know. Well, I wish, oh, we need like real like sound film footage. I really want it, and I want to see the the end of it too. Like I want to see renderings of the end of it. In any reconstruction or anything, I've never been able to see actual film of the finale. Probably because like the finale of what we're talking about, hard to hard to film. (laughs) Probably true. Uh, This version of the pavilion that they were putting together was kind of donut shaped, 
with a scalloped outer edge. Uh, and the ride-through attraction would be mostly film-based. Uh, here's a clip, quote from Claude. said, There was a lot of some recent cartoon film, and there were some elements of humor where you had tired horses at a chariot race, <laughs> while behind in the background would have been film of a chariot race. There were certain bits of humor in it, but not as much as Ward Kimball added when he took over. So, yeah, this is going to be filmed. I, I have pictures of the model, which we'll probably put on our live stream uh, next month. Uh, but, yeah, you can see how they were doing it. You had, like, footage of, like, Ben-Hur or something on a screen. Then you had animatronic tired horses in front of the screen. Huh. So it was kind of blending the two. Uh, this version of the attraction is interesting because from a distance it looks very much like World of Motion, but on closer inspection there are differences. There's a large central atrium that's open, kind of like World of Motions, but much larger. has a enormous space shuttle orbiter hanging in the middle, which is that's a cool. nice touch, really yeah. cool. And also has speed ramps, which appear to take guests to the second floor where the attraction would be located. And the scenes are, as I said, uh, much less dimensional than the final product. Think if you had wings, uh, a ride consisting mostly of movie screens with some dimensional trappings around the edges. Screen-based so, attraction, the early yeah. years. <laughs> exactly. Well, Claude yeah. was a master of these. He was a master yeah. of staging with yes. projections and stuff. So, But man, that spatial orbiter would have been cool. Yeah, it looks really nice in the model. Uh, guests would ride in these kind of moving theater omnimover vehicles. They're kind of hard to figure out from the models. They appear to seat eight to 12 people. So it's hmm. uh, almost like a stadium seating omnimover moving theater kind of, kind of deal. It's Interesting. Uh, one other intriguing element is in the models from this period. It's an large outdoor track winding out from underneath the pavilion that seems to be some sort of test track for futuristic vehicles. I've never been able to nail down any details about this. It appears like it was a way for guests to experience GM's ideas for future transportation right there on site. So maybe they were like Ford. Maybe they're like, you have to get in the car. That's right. It makes sense. As I said, uh, you think they would have Belgian blocks out there? <laughs> maybe so. We have to let them experience these Belgian blocks. <laughs> Only then will they appreciate General Motors vehicles <laughs> and buy a Bonneville. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> if you're lucky. In the summer of 1977, GM and Disney executives began to discuss the potential of GM participating in Epcot. Roger Smith, yes, the same Roger Smith who would become infamous for the film Roger and Me in the 80s, was at that point the executive VP of finance for GM, and he was particularly interested in the Disney project. It, he was often credited as the guy who made this deal happen. And hmm. even in the dedication of the pavilion, by that time he was head of General Motors, and much homage was paid to him as the singular individual who made this all happen. So it was through his efforts that authorization was granted to enter into contract negotiations with Disney. Yeah, I always found it interesting that they didn't go with Ford, but I mean, who knows if Ford would have gone in with them. I mean, I guess, was Ford having, it's a good guess that Ford was having a tough time at that point, but uh, 
Yeah. yeah I, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure if they tried with Ford and it didn't happen or it, yeah, you're right. It would seem that their ex- pre-existing relationship would be with Ford, but maybe Ford just wasn't interested. In although theme park stuff. Yeah. I mean, maybe not. And although you would think that in 64, they would have probably rather gone with GM, but GM had a concept in place already. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. true. So I don't yeah. know. Well, and Ford didn't, Ford wasn't interested in bringing Magic Skyway to Disneyland after yeah. the fair. So maybe they just weren't into the idea. That's the East Coast elites. They were. <laughs> exactly. They were going to the opera at that point. Back More to interested the <laughs> in a blue steak and a pitcher of martinis. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, in December of 1977, GM agreed to participate in Epcot, making them the first U.S. corporation to commit which was a huge deal in making the project move forward and in drawing in additional corporate participants. Exxon soon followed, and Epcot would be off to the races after years of delays. Uh, yeah, seriously, at this time, this was seen as a big deal, got a lot of media coverage. Everybody said it was a big deal because Epcot was a project that was seen as stagnant or dead or you know, very unsure if Disney was going to be able to get anyone to buy in. They had started with big talk and then had nothing to show for it a few years later. But GM was such a huge institution at the time, most corporations seem to think, well, if GM is in, I want to be there too. Yeah, I mean, And there's a really a, like a herd mentality with these corporations at the time. They're like, well, GM and Exxon, well, we got to be there. If we're like if we're the big boys in our industry, then we got to be there too, or we'll look like second rate. Yeah, I mean GM is a pretty huge. I mean, gosh, it's it's still a huge deal, but back then, I mean, it was yeah. the biggest of the big. You know, that and AT and T, I feel like, or Bell Labs, or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, both of who participated. Uh, well, yeah, and it made it easy for them to approach other companies to be like, you know, well, we got GM, so if you guys want to mm-hmm. hang with the big boys, if you want to be the GM of your industry, then right, come right. on over, you know. And other companies were like, yes, yes, we have to, we have to be part of this. Uh, incidentally, the agreement also called for GM to co-sponsor a 12-hour network television package of Epcot specials. And to participate in a major Epcot-oriented educational program. Oh, we never got those darn specials. Dang, I know. I wonder if that's going to be on the Disney Channel. <laughs> hey, hey, probably. <laughs> Part of the- They wanted to do network specials, I know, at one That's point. wild. I just, uh, they were always promising specials, and we never got the specials. Didn't get enough specials. We got some, but not those kind. No. Yeah. Uh, By 1978, it was said that the Transportation Pavilion will, quote, illustrate how man has progressed through time in direct relation to his freedom of mobility, his ability to move himself, goods, and services from one location to another. Visitors will see man's humble transportation beginnings evolve as he reaches out to explore the world around him. In one of the pavilion's highlights, guests will take simulated trips many at high speed, aboard many of today's modes of transportation. Then they will view a variety of concepts for future transportation systems, including prototypes of vehicle and system concepts for tomorrow. Uh, Yeah, images from this time show guests sitting in large vehicles holding a dozen or more people 
and sitting in front of a film screen, putting them in the middle of a car race. Uh, George McGinnis also designed some simulator cabins for the attraction. So maybe this was something for the post-show area. It's it's hard to sort it out, but maybe they had some simulator element to the show. Mm, interesting. Which is ahead of the curve, I have to Yeah, add. I was going to say, uh, very ahead of the curve and very uh, uh, futuristic. Uh, yeah, very desirable. Uh, seeing yeah. something like that would be super cool. Yeah, George was always ahead of the curve on uh, the simulator thing. Yes, true. true. He was always uh, like very early on considering it for things. September of 1978, legendary animator and generally wacky guy Ward Kimball was called in to art direct the show going forward. And I was always curious about how this happened. Uh, obviously, Ward was a maniac about vintage vehicles, and obviously he had done the Magic Highway show. But he hadn't done much at Imagineering, so I wonder who made that call. Yeah, I, this is always so confusing to me. Uh, it seems like, you know, there are, few, there are very few guys that go between the worlds uh, after a certain point in time. And then people like Ollie Johnston, you know, Frank Thomas, Ward Kimball yeah. were left in the studio to mind the shop. It's always seemed so strange to me that he came aboard for this, but I think there's there's something about Epcot and the creation of Epcot that I feel like drew in, you know, it, it drew some people back uh, and it drew some people over to, and it seems like something to do with Walt, you know, fulfilling his dream in some form or fashion, right? That's, That's my guess. Yeah. Well, and it could have just been uh, just desperation for, they were doing so much. And we're like, yeah, that's we true. People that's who are true. talented at this kind of thing. Ah, yeah. No matter what the medium is, you know, think about all they created from scratch. They couldn't replicate anything. And then right. all the concepts they did that they didn't even build. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's really interesting to think about. And, you know, Ward at this point was retired. Uh, Mark Davis had, quit as well he didn't retire he quit because he was so yeah. mad that they wouldn't use any of his awesome ideas and ward had retired and so both of them were brought back as sort of contractors and yeah it's just all hands on deck it seemed like uh, but ward said if he was going to do the attraction it would have to have more dimensional sets and more audio animatronics figures so he didn't right. want it to be all right days, all right which, which uh, is odd uh, you wouldn't yeah, you wouldn't think a film guy would care. That's interesting. Yeah, I think he had, there was a, some quote about, you know, he'd been offered enough films and said no. Huh. Like, I've said no to making movies, so uh, I'll keep saying no to making movies, and I want to do something with dimensional, something dimensional. Uh, according to Alan Coates, uh, Claude's son, Claude was a little salty about the changeover. Didn't think that GM wanted humor in the show. Claude wanted to lean more into infotainment. Uh, here's a, another quote from Claude, uh, quote, he injected quite a bit of humor, which for just a little while was a bit of a shock for General Motors. In one meeting, they were a little bit surprised that their business could be not really poked fun at, but they didn't think their business was that funny, I guess. Hmm. So clearly, yeah, they maybe, seen maybe it was Magic Highway corporate. USA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> By 1979, there were some bad feelings. Ward was frustrated with the lack of clarity as to who was ultimately in charge of the show. 
Mark, who was working from home as an outside contractor, like I said, he was upset at his lack of control. And Claude was upset as his early ideas had been so radically changed. A lot of Mark's gags did make it into the show. Uh, some of his earlier ideas for film gags were adapted into dimensional scenes. He had he had done them with the idea of them being animated, but they got translated into three dimensions. Uh, he also created new scenes for the animatronics as well. A lot of the scenes that we know and remember from the actual attraction. Uh, but he was frustrated with submitting his art to be interpreted by others. At this point, I really should shout out the Chris Merritt Mark Davis book because it has a ton of art from this project and information. Uh, it's got art from both the film gags and the dimensional scenes. And as you might imagine, it's all really good stuff. Yeah, this stuff is incredible from World of Motion in that book. And it is interesting. It is totally, yeah, You've in that ride, you did feel like you were in an animated movie come to life. Uh, that's mm -hmm. funny that it was designed to be like that because it does feel like that maybe more than any other attraction I can think of. I mean, I guess there's the ones in Fantasyland, maybe, but this just seems more vivid. I, I don't know. It's It was great in that regard. Absolutely. And, you know, the Mark Davis sketches is everything from, like, the Mona Lisa scene to the ship captain and the sea serpent mm -hmm. and the train robbery. But Mark, apparently, according to that book, was salty about a lot. He didn't like other people staging his work. Hmm. And, you know, Ward was there on the ground in Florida doing a lot of the staging. And Mark wanted to do it himself, really. And so he didn't like the way a lot of scenes wound up, especially that train robbery scene. He didn't think it was staged as strongly as it could have been based on his drawing because he he wanted to do it himself. You know, when Mark Davis wants to do something, you let him do it as far as I'm concerned. It's true. Although I don't think the results were too shabby, but no, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. He seemed to later think that it was kind of a, a wash, but I, <laughs> I disagree. I think yeah. it was really good. Uh, anyway, Ward uh, Kimball devised a comedic finale for the attraction with moon creatures and flying saucers but that was ultimately scrapped in favor of the center core city of the future segment designed by Tim Delaney. If you want to know more about that beauty, go back and check out our interview with Delaney where he talks about that memorable scene. Mm -hmm. uh, we should have him on again just to talk more about that. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. It's such a good scene. Well, it's an amazing scene and it's something that uh, there was just so much detail to. It'd be interesting to know more about, you know, the, the concept of, because uh, it was huge and really cool and kind of very abstract. Um, yeah. Fantastic music. Oh, yeah. As well. Golly. Yes. That's one of my favorite Epcot music. Yeah. Cues in yeah. yeah. It's so good. Uh, yeah. And almost impossible to capture on film, unfortunately. So yes. We'll wait till somebody recreates it in 3D, complete with effects and everything. Uh, by 1980, the official description of the ride had changed to this, quote, Ride vehicles will transport guests through a series of humorous audio-animatronic scenes recreating memorable moments in transportation history. Uh, one benefit of all this early development and the early sponsor sign-on meant that this show was far ahead of some others. 
In our episode about the land, we talked about the huge overhauls that pavilion received in the late 1970s, but a revised script for the transportation attraction from November of 1980 reads pretty much like the final show, and even includes It's Fun to Be Free, the pavilion's banger of a theme song by Buddy Baker and Exidencio. Uh, Jeff, do you have a favorite Fun to Be Free hmm, variant? Gosh, yeah. I guess I have to go with the really silly one because that's the one that I remember most as a kid. Um, yeah, the that that one's uh, probably my favorite one. What about you? Uh, I mean, the kazoo one is hard to beat. Yeah, the one I get—it's not my favorite, but the one that always gets stuck in my head is the one that's, I guess, for the '60s or '70s. It's like the sort of "It's fun to be free" <laughs> sort yeah. of uh, youth ridiculous pop group kind of kind of version but that's not my favorite but it gets stuck in my head so yeah so many so many variations and so i mean yeah that's the sign of a good song right there that you can interpret it in all those ways oh, oh absolutely my head absolutely. for the rest of the day yeah by march of 1980 claude had mostly moved on from the transportation pavilion as he was needed on century three which would become Horizons, although he maintained direction of the transportation show's speed rooms and center core area. Master so, of Vibes. Master of Vibes had had to be involved in, in those, which is a perfect fit. But as advanced as development was on the attraction, they still didn't have a name for it. And you know I love the wacky alternate names. Yes. In uh, September 1980, GM submitted a list of seven names their PR people had cooked up. But Marty didn't like any of them. One executive insisted that Disney consider mobility from here to there. <laughs> Apparently, Disney had submitted the suggestion Trans Center, but GM felt that worked better for the exhibit area, which was planned for the first floor of the pavilion. Yeah, so, man, you can't. You can't call it Trans Center. That's can't call it Trans Center, but they kept the name. They liked yes. it, so they used it for that. Uh, Ward submitted a lengthy list in October 1980, which is very Ward-y. Some were straightforward, like Trans Center 2000 or Trans Porama. But then there's uh, Autotorium, uh-huh, <laughs> Motortorium, American Cavalcade of Transport, and Transposanctorum. <laughs> which I quite like. He goes totally off the grid with, among many, many others, uh, Guzzlerama, Legrumo-rama, Carburetor-rama, and Mobile-mama-rama. I'm sure they really appreciated this list. Yes, it's these con- thank you for your contributions. Yes. Mar- I'm sure Marty got it. It's like, yeah. great, this is real helpful. Uh, meanwhile, Mark Novodnik and a group of Disney writers submitted a list suggesting Transpo Center, Future Ways 2000, and Future En Route, as well as rejected possibilities like Transplex and Travel Mode. Travel Mode? <laughs> that is not the name of a place. Welcome to Travel Mode. <laughs> what does that mean? Of their uh. selections, Marty Best liked Transways. And suggested variations like Tomorrow's Transways or Transways to Tomorrow. By December of 1980, GM requested that the pavilion be named Transarama 2000. Gah! No! 
The Rama bit was an intentional callback to Futurama, which had a lot of internal nostalgia at GM, and they wanted to evoke that feeling, chase that vibe. So call it Futurama. Yeah. (laughs) Futurama 3. I guess it doesn't make sense for what that was, but still. Still. Yeah. Transorama. 2000, because it's the future. Work continued on. By March of 1981, GM had actually done market surveys about what the name should be uh, because reaction inside the companies to Transorama 2000 had not been positive. No, it's a terrible name. Looking for something else. Uh, Coming in last on their survey were Freedom of Mobility and Mobility, Your Fifth Freedom. God. Transorama 2000 was in the middle of the pack, and ahead of it was number two, World of Motion, A. And the winner by a single percentage point, Magic of Motion. Hmm. Well, Marty liked World of Motion and suggested it be recommended to GM. And so it happened that the Transportation Pavilion finally became World of Motion. I tell you what, you start to see why Marty uh, earned his bona fides. (laughs) <laughs> when you go through these names, I mean, it's like every time they're hitting on the best name uh, yeah. so far, uh, we are undefeated. World of Motion is so much better than any of those other names by mm-hmm. unbelievable travel mode. Yeah, travel Mo- mode. Travel. <laughs> Just offensive. Mobility, your friends around. raises so yeah. many questions. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Anyway. The final script for the show was recorded in April 1981 with a voiceover by the late, great Gary Owens, who was such a weirdly omnipresent and reassuring presence during our youth. It's true. It's true. Due to this and so many other things. Mm-hmm. Um, by this time, the show was actually taking shape. With Kimball at the helm, it's unsurprising that there were to be a lot of antiques in the show. Thousands of hours of searching went in discovering the coaches, cars, trucks, and buses featured in the show's many scenes. Imagineers traveled the globe, contacting collectors, museums, and manufacturers. Amazingly, the stagecoach in the Cowboys and Indians scene was authentic. It had originally traveled a route from Tucson to Phoenix, Arizona during the 1880s. It was real. That's amazing. Uh, The coach had been discovered by Imagineer Lee Congiardo at a Phoenix farm. Uh, Congiardo was the one assigned to find the cars that Ward wanted for the show. Like, Ward had a list. I want this, 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 and Hmm. this. Go find them. And Congiardo spent three years traveling across the country looking for autos and more than 3,300 other props. So I wonder what happened to that stagecoach and those cars. Me too. Because you know they ain't giving those away or throwing them in the junk. I mean, maybe they'll sell them. Uh, yeah, no and they sell them like they sold the orchestrions. Right, exactly. So exactly what I thought. Of. Um, Sadie May, poor yep. Sadie May. Yep, yep. I don't know, but I sure hope they didn't just trash all that stuff because, well, I have I have some more coming up. Uh, the oldest authentic auto on display was a 1904 auto car, which was in the picnic scene. And the rarest car in the exhibit was in the barnstormer scene. It was a three door touring sedan built by Chevrolet in 1916. Uh, only seven of those cars were believed to exist in the world in 1982. 
Wow. So I really hope these were saved when the ride closed. Well, the other thing is all those cars uh, clearly were show ready, which means they looked absolutely perfect. Yes. Yes. I mean, you would think there were replicas because they were so in such good shape. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the cars in the attraction weren't their authentic colors because Ward wanted them in brighter, showier hues because he's Ward. Uh, but there was one exception from the 20th century motoring scene where they had four cars from different decades like lined up next to each other with people inside. Uh, Ward wanted to repaint a green 1939 Cadillac a two-tone pink. GM exec said no. Cadillac has never made a pink car, and they weren't about to start now. <sighs> No the stuffiest these execs from this time. It's like, God, get over yourselves. Yeah, the notes that they give are just get amazing. Over yourself. I mean, that's, See, there's a yeah. song called Pink Cadillac. What are you going to say there's no Pink Cadillac? It's, I think, it's a whole thing. Yeah, there. this is the... Of course, Epcot Center couldn't have been built without uh, all these corporate you know, participation. But this is where... It gets strained for sure. All the their input, mm-hmm. and like that, a transportation pavilion becomes all about cars. It's not coincidental, but the uh, God, just them, uh, just imagining trying to create something and having them be like, "No, there are no pink Cadillacs." It's like hush, <laughs> and we're not gonna do it now, ever. Yeah, yeah. It, I'm sure it was just a constant minefield of things when I, I've, I don't remember who I was talking to said like the, one of the hardest to deal with was cause you know, they'd have a point person with each pavilion and they seem to really like the GE guy. And I heard some, somebody told me at one point that the American express person was a real pill to deal with. Yeah. Uh, that she was, she was tough to deal with. So I, yeah, we'll have to get to that story sometime. Interesting. Yeah, one people one thing people always talk about World of Motion was its scale. Uh, notably, it featured 139 audio animatronic people, plus 82 animals, 43 animated props, 16 automobiles, and it was 14 and a half minutes long. This was an epic attraction. Yeah, I mean that's something that people who didn't experience. I mean, I guess you can see it some in Spaceship Earth, but there were so many others, like Horizons at World of Motion especially just huge and mm-hmm. so much. And this one, like you said, the audio animatronics were, I man, it's gotta be the most that they built for any of them. Right. I would think Yeah, it was, it was definitely the most. Yeah. yeah. Probably yeah. ever. Right. That's, what, ever I mean. since, That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Although the original plans for it to be film based, mostly fell by their wayside. It did retain a little of the simulator aspect in its three finale speed rooms. Claude must have loved speed rooms. Yeah, we had them in If You Had Wings. We had them here. They used 70 millimeter film to give you the feeling of motion. Like you were going down a bobsled run or you were in a race car. You were rafting down a river. The films were produced by Edmund Penny and David Moore and concluded with the digitization sequence from Tron which always seemed super random, but was a cool transition to the center core regardless. (laughs) It was, and a very effective effect, I thought. Yeah, it looked good, like blown up like that. Right, right. Whatever. There was also the flame vortex, which I don't... I don't know. Yeah, what was that about? Black Hole? Is that from Black Hole? Maybe. 
I mean, that happens in Black Hole. Yeah. I don't know. I've got to figure out if it's the same film or not, but it might be. What do we got sitting around? Well, we got a flame vortex and we've got this <laughs> digitization thing. So let's put those in. We got there. some wheels. Uh, maybe from yeah. uh, <laughs> Magic Skyway. I don't know. Yeah. We should also mention the Trans Center, which was the post-show area for World of Fashion. Oh, yeah. Got to. was uh, meant to suggest how research and technology would shape the world of motion in the year 2000 and beyond. was a 33,000-square-foot exhibition space with five main attractions. There was Aerotest, which was the big wind tunnel thing, the bird and the robot, the water engine, Concept 2000, and Dreamer's Workshop. There were lots of memorable things here. Concept 2000 showed how the automobile of the future, which was called the Aero 2000, would be developed. And the Dreamer's Workshop featured the lean machine, with which I was obsessed. Mm -hmm. This is a small single rider three-wheel vehicle that looked like something out of Tron. I'm still bitter they never happened. Uh, do, do you have any standout memories of Trans Center? Oh, I mean, you know, we kind of made fun of Trans Center when we were younger. Uh, but there were things like the lean machine. I remember the kind of maglev train model they had that you could move around. Yes. Um, but really when I got a little bit older and we started to get really into kind of the esoteric and uh, nooks and crannies, if you will, I really liked the water engine show mm -hmm. and, and the bird and the robot. Those were good shows. We would always, when we were younger, we were just like cranking it out, just going, going, going. Um, we'd be like, not stopping in Trend Center. But there were actually enjoyable things there that I discovered like in early teens, you know. But I thought the, uh, water, yeah, the water engine was great. I love that yeah. show. A really fun animated film. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I liked, you mentioned the, the Maglev train. I think I was in Dreamer's Workshop because they had a lot of stuff that reminded me of things you would see in popular mechanics which we yes. uh, which i would always read at the barbershop and yes. it would be you know futuristic i don't know ships sailing to the south pole and mm -hmm. things like that and these train or truck transport trains and you know crazy kind of stuff it had very much had that vibe so do you know that popular mechanics has its own like infuriating net geo shortening now no. Yeah, there. I went to there. I was actually looking up stuff for uh, the GM stuff and found on their website that they're now at times called Pop Mech. No, they're no, you're not. <laughs> it's not a Pop thing. Mech. It's not a thing. <laughs> How did Nat Geo become such a thing, Michael? I don't know, but I am. I am again it. Yes. However it happened, it. I'm again it. Okay. Nat Geo. That no. is upsetting to me. You you've you're too old for that, Nat Geo. Yes. It's not you don't need to do it. You don't, you need, don't it. need it. Oh man. Well, World of Motion it came to be. It was dedicated on October 5th, 1982, with the typical Epcot pageantry. People in jumpsuits and logos on sticks uh, performing We've Just Begun to Dream, of course, in mm -hmm. their leotards, little space leotards. 
Uh, here's a little of Disney CEO Card Walker speaking at the dedication. Ladies and gentlemen, and all the distinguished guests here this morning from General Motors, and there are some boys and girls out there, welcome to the world in motion from all of us at Walt Disney Productions. We're here, as you know, to dedicate this showplace that illustrates how mankind's progress through the ages has always been directly related to his freedom of mobility. I have to say that this is an extraordinary pavilion, one we're very proud of. While it is impressive in size and scope, and for the new dimensions it presents in entertainment with a purpose, no structure that could be built would be large enough to adequately symbolize the impact of the automobile on our American society. The standard of excellence for all world's fairs and expositions was set by the General Motors Corporation at the New York World's Fair in 1939. In addition to establishing the popularity of the ride-through attractions, the exhibit called Highways and Horizons accurately predicted that the automobile would literally change the geography of America with a network of superhighways. At a time, as you probably recall, those of you who are here, there was still more dirt roads than superhighways. This pavilion was created in the tradition of that never-to-be-forgotten World's Fair, and our show traces the impact of the mobility in our lifestyle, and it also includes a look into the future of what's going to happen to us. Amazingly, this incredible attraction lasted less than 14 years. Think about that. It closed on January 2nd, 1996 to make way for Test Track. remember these days even for those of us who were there way back when it was kind of hard to come by theme park videos it's difficult to comprehend just how life would have been like as a kid with access to youtube and all the infinite video sources we have today uh, yeah uh, how much we used to watch our own videos and before that i would even listen to the audio that we we would make of the parts so yeah, good. Yeah, good video footage. It's uh, yeah. it's so weird to think about. Like, uh, well, yeah, we would lug down this, you know, kind of medium-sized tape recorder, and hold it up to speakers just yeah. to get like a sample of sample of what was going on. It's great and for world emotion. Yeah, and horizons. Those were the the red letter ones. Yeah, yeah. good yeah. good audio or good pickups on those. Yeah. Uh, but now I think about like your kids are going to grow up in a world where they're they can see anything anytime and like they're they're now they're super into old Epcot videos and mm -hmm. like what we would have given for that. Just oh gosh, yeah, yeah, to be able to have it anytime. 
course, I wish we'd had today's technology back then because we'd have far better documentation of all these glorious, extinct attractions. It's one thing now, you know, we get 50,000 separate vlogger videos of current attractions, but I mean, what would we give to have 80s era Epcot documented in that same way? Mm. Where just everything, there are pictures of everything, every change is documented like by a blogger or something. That would be fantastic. Yes. Oh, yes. All in glorious HD. So without the internet, we had to rely on what brief windows we could get into the parks. At least once a year, we'd hopefully get a peek at some park footage courtesy of the televised Very Merry Christmas Parade. The same applied for the annual 4th of July Parade broadcast as well. For the supremely lucky, home movies could fill the gap, and you could record as much as you wanted as long as your battery and tape space allowed, but that was for most an elusive dream for a long time. Uh, Then, of course, Disney Channel came along. Back in the day, the Disney Channel showed all manner of historical and current parks content, complete with anniversary specials or programs highlighting the newest attractions. Back then, you didn't know what was coming, so you were always on the lookout for something exciting. Yeah, and in a time where they were starting to have a building boom, uh, Disney Channel was the best resource for what was what was coming up and uh, little models and stuff of of the future things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, it just surprised you because it was something you hadn't heard of yet that mm-hmm. they had just announced and. I mean, there was no, (laughs) I I mean, Usenet existed, but we weren't on Usenet then. And, you know, didn't even have news groups to get your news and much less anything else. And so you just kind of had to hear it when it made it to your local paper or came out in the annual report, really. Right. Or Disney News. We had Disney News. But uh, the real treasure, if you could secure such a thing, was the official souvenir video. For most of our early youth, there were only a couple of these. There was one for Epcot and one for Magic Kingdom slash Disney World pre-Epcot. We didn't have either one of them, weirdly enough. That is weird that we didn't. We used to, I mean, I remember going into the Disney store and they'd be showing those on repeat early on in our Disney store experience. And then you'd just go over there and watch that forever. Yeah, they they had the one that, like the TV that was kind of like in the corner by the door. Yep. That would always have like park video playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good stuff. You just park yourself there and watch. That's a different world, man. But uh, as we made it into the 1990s, they started putting out more of these souvenir videos. And around the millennium, they actually started putting out souvenir DVDs with footage of the park. Uh, and that was really exciting. Sadly and strangely, they haven't done any of these for nearly 20 years now. But I, I live in hope. But... It's kind of odd where the souvenir video thing really isn't a thing anymore. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you, you said it, but now everybody does YouTube and and now they don't even have the a vacation planner anymore uh, because exactly. people don't consume media and, you know, they do streaming now. So I don't know. Yeah, it's strange. You'd still think there would be a market for really professionally done stuff. But yeah. Who knows? Uh, For a while, though, there was a way you could get some exclusive park footage of your very own. And best of all, it was completely free. And if you think getting something free sounds pretty neat now, as a kid, it was even more magical of a concept. Getting an entire Disney souvenir video for the low, low price of nothing was pretty Mm mind-blowing. It's like, oh, they're giving me something for free. That's incredible. Uh, 
Uh, now, one option on this front was, as Jeff mentioned, the Walt Disney World vacation planning videos, which started up in the early 1990s and continued through the millennium uh, in, in well into the DVD age, probably the mid-aughts was about the time those started drying up. And now we those we absolutely did take advantage of. Oh, we, yes. Yes, we absolutely uh, Notoriously. I know. I can't believe the first one still works. We watched it so much. I mean, I can't believe it still functions because we watched it over and over. Uh, we should just do a show about that planner alone sometime. Yes, because it lived large in our subconscious. <laughs> like, I still feel like all all of those man on the street interviews all live in my head full time mm-hmm. around the clock. Mm-hmm. I think of them way too often yes. uh, as I go about my day. We quote them constantly to this day. <laughs> exactly. Love the leathers. Uh, anyway, prior to those videos, there was a way to get another free VHS treat. This one's straight from Epcot itself. And this magnificent windfall came courtesy of the largesse of General Motors and the World of Motion. As you pass through the Trans Center post show area, a friendly cast member might hand you a promotional flyer for GM, and it came complete with a postage paid order form for a GM sponsored souvenir video. You didn't even need to pay for a stamp. It was amazing. After returning home and weeks of obsessively stalking the postman on his daily rounds, you'd get one of these fine videos delivered directly to your home. What excitement! Uh, The videos were a pretty standard triptych of Walt Disney World, with extra time lavished on the World of Motion attraction, naturally. There was also usually a plug for General Motors, and on certain versions, you'd even get a rousing greeting from a GM executive. On the 1989 iteration of the video called Make Your Own Magic, we get this spirited hello from GM Chairman Robert Stimple. Something for everybody. Today we've come to expect, even demand, variety in almost everything that affects the quality of our lives. The history of transportation here at the World of Motion shows how people throughout the ages have searched for and found better ways to get from here to there. As transportation technology improved, they found they wanted more than the freedom to travel. They wanted to travel in style and vehicles reflected their personal taste in design, engineering, power, safety, performance, and durability. In the World of Motion Trans Center, we go beyond the present and look at the future of transportation. It takes more than imagination to dream up a new engine or a new design to catch the eye. It takes the experience and insight of knowledgeable observers to foresee the vehicles, the technologies, and the transportation systems that will be appropriate for the future. General Motors, the world's largest automobile company, is proud of its continuing role in the history of transportation. We're proud of the imaginative ways we're extending the freedom of choice in personal transportation products to people on the go everywhere. We're listening to our customers to be sure we meet their needs while adding the excitement of the future. Nice read, Robert. Uh, It's almost like GM felt like they had some sort of publicity problem they needed to address in the late 80s. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Weird. Weird. But they're there for us. They are there for us. Anyway, there were several of these videos from the late 80s until the mid-90s, and the tradition seems to have ended with the arrival of Test Track. But I can't say they didn't go out with a bang. Uh, The last one I've ever managed to find is from 1995, and it's called Disney's Magical Adventure. And what a magical adventure it is, Jeff. Yes. 
Oh man, you know the, the fact that GM felt that the, the GM more than anybody else felt the need to somehow hitch their wagon to Disney. And by the end, it just feels like really a Disney promotional video. Yeah. Uh, more than anything else. I don't even know what GM's getting out of it by the end of it. I know. They just have their name at the start. And right. that's pretty pretty much it. Yeah. Like you said, just feels like a, a Disney promo. But this is no regular tour. No, no, no. This is a high-concept think piece about the importance of imagination. Hosted by none other than Renaissance icon and huge Walt Disney World fan, Leonardo da Vinci. And oh, this is no regular da Vinci. This is a very special direct-to-video da Vinci from the Super Mario region of Italy. <laughs> uh, let's hear him introduce our magical adventure. Ah, yes, my dear. Intelligence is a wondrous and a powerful tool, but what good would be the skills of any craftsman or artist without the imagination of the mind or the soul of the spirit? Jeff, the first time I saw this, I was dead by this point. Um, we should add that Leonardo, as seen here, is a guy in old age makeup worthy of early season Star Trek The Next Generation. And he's painting something we can't see. It's off to the side. But this isn't all old Leonardo in this video. No, we soon flash back to his youth, where young Leonardo sits in his smock, painting away. Leonardo, you're still painting down here. Yes, Mama. Well, not anymore, you are Get yourself to bed this moment. You'll have plenty of time to paint tomorrow. Yes, Mama. <laughs> In my earlier years, I was so excited to learn that when it came a time for bed, the nights would pass unbearably slowly. But this night was to be different, as if by magic, I fell into a deep sleep almost immediately. It was then that I first discovered the power of imagination. We see that young Leo has been spending his evening painting a picture of Cinderella Castle, which has somehow passed through one of those random Photoshop filters you never use. Um, makes it kind of blotchy. But yeah. uh, once he's sent to bed, he finds himself dreaming of the Magic Kingdom, where he's a floppy-haired modern kid, 1990s style. Because, you know, naturally. Uh, we then get the standard tour of the Magic Kingdom, where young Leo enjoys Legend of the Lion King... Alien Encounter, Splash Mountain, and much, much more courtesy of stock footage. The family even gets to visit Blizzard Beach, riding straight up to the gate in their General Motors cars. After a stop at All-Star Sports in their Pontiac Transport SE, they head back to the Magic Kingdom for the surprise celebration parade. Uh, you never get enough of those B-roll ad video for legend of the lion king yes and alien encounter with the worried looking blossom kid. yes and then you can throw in the tower of terror into that they had the same oh yeah and even that yeah they had a bunch of splash mountain stuff early on with the people going down the hill all you know it's just 
at like a crazy angle, like tilting the camera to make it look like they're going like straight down. It's amazing. He could really see into the future in such specific ways. I know. Oh, it was incredible. The imagination. It's yeah. I mean, I it's just like have to, watching the Lion King. I have to underline how Star Trek: The Next Generation it is. First season is is perfect, <laughs> perfect. It really, really is. I mean, it is like if they had met Leonardo da Vinci in the first yeah. season. This yeah. is like who it would have been. Oh, the great patriotism <laughs> oh, of imagination. That is not all. Uh, it's not all young Leo. After a leap backwards and forwards in time, we find young adult Leonardo poring over his books. And so, I spent many of my adult years studying the greater works to try and attain the knowledge of making my visions a reality. Master Leonardo, you really must find time for your supper. I will finish it later. I have much work to do. But it's not like you to pass on your supper. Hard as I tried to gain the knowledge that I had dreamed of, I could not. What I did not realize was that imagination is a random spark. It occurs spontaneously and without provocation. Oh, but I found out soon enough. Now, young dude Leonardo, who apparently influenced Billy Zane's mascara habit. Yes! He's quite dreamy-eyed. He's dreaming of time with his special lady friend at the Wilderness Lodge, where he arrived in his GMC Jimmy. Uh, Young dude Leonardo and his lady are bound for the Disney MGM Studios, where all the hip young folks want to go. We see them soaking up all the old attractions, you know? If you've ever wanted to hear Leonardo da Vinci pontificate about imagination over footage of the Pocahontas stage show, this is the video for you. Yeah. They get everything. They got that that little mermaid show with the bubbles and Indy and everything. I, I thought it was really funny that his vision of the future, you know, was going, I guess, you know, the wilderness was in the future for him. So maybe that was like futuristic to him. <laughs> That's true. They have a... The, the national park for the people. Yes. Well, unsurprisingly, uh, young dude Leo and his lady ended up their day at Pleasure Island, where it's always New Year's Eve. So we get that footage, uh, that time-honored stock footage of Pleasure Island. But still, he's, he's still not satisfied. He's haunted by his visions. If we find middle-aged Leonardo staring at a spinning top in his study. So for the latter part of my years, I became obsessed with returning again and again. I don't know what you're going to accomplish staring at that thing spin around and around. Mm -hmm. Oh, pay me no mind, Master Leonardo. Your secret is safe. Wasting away all your time. If they only knew, eh? (laughs) Dreams are the doorway to the imagination, my dear. As you wish, Master Leonardo, as you wish. But uh, Leonardo picks up a crystal ball, which fades into an image of Spaceship Earth. And we find Dad Leonardo with a family of his own at Epcot, because that's when you're grown up, you go to Epcot. We get clips of the classic rides, all of them, as well as Interventions 1.0, I have that Sega arcade mm-hmm. and 
and uh, some loving footage of the GM exhibit there at Interventions because they got an exhibit there as well. Uh, imagination is amazing. It can make a CGI cat paw at you in Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Um, he could barely believe his size. That's right. That's right. Leonardo was lucky because he even had time to hit up World of Motion before it closed. So he was one of the last, yeah. <laughs> the last to experience it. He could see yeah, himself. See him. I know that must have been weird. Yeah. Why? Why? I'm so old, and I got the flying machine. <laughs> I don't get it. And that's why he painted the Mona Lisa because he because he got the idea from the from world of him. motion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, it's like Inception. It's just like a loop. <laughs> so for the older set, we get some footage of GM cars pulling up to the Grand Floridian, and some oldsters out on the links while Leonardo talks about having the fortitude to exist in this world. Whatever that means. <laughs> I guess it's it's hard to be old and play golf, I suppose. Anyway, he finally wraps up things in his old age with some words of wisdom. Anyway, why should I consume myself so? There will be others to continue this quest for imagination. As for me, I am content to keep the memories and the visions of this cool thing called imagination to myself especially since nobody would ever believe me anyway and of course we get a button on the whole thing we finally see what he has been painting all along a surly young lady sits on a stool while he paints a portrait of the mona lisa wearing mouse ears a wink to the camera and someone cranks up the posterize effect in Photoshop. We see Leo's signature appear and that's it. What a magical adventure. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, GM and Disney get a little Leonardo da Vinci in there <laughs> right. to uh, bring some context. I can't believe, yeah, again, I mean, I can't say enough how how specific his vision of the future was, but, uh, you know, that... That uh, rendering of Cinderella Castle, you think they found that in his, uh, you know, archives? <laughs> I hope just, so. Yeah, I hope that's, like, hidden in the Louvre somewhere. Yeah. John Hatch was like, you know, this might be pretty good for the second theme park. <laughs> Herbie, take a look at this Di Da Vinci thing. <laughs> think it'll work. Uh, yeah, it's it's something else, that Leonardo Da Vinci. Uh, perhaps this was the perfect video to mark the transition between World of Motion and Test Track. Uh, if anyone out there knows of GM promo videos later than this, let us know. I'd love to know if there were any that came out in the Test Track era. But until then, we'll let this cool thing called imagination fill in the gaps.
So that wraps up our mobility episode. Uh, Michael, how mobile do you feel at the moment? Oh, I've, I'm, my dogs are barking. Yeah. I've been, I feel like I've been there and back again. But uh, one thing we didn't, we didn't talk too much about is the fact that this attraction was replaced by Test Track. Mm-hmm. And you have an early Test Track story. We, you told this on our live stream, but I, I thought uh, you'd share it with everybody. A, a, a brush with Test Track that you once had that was very exciting. Yeah, and you know, going back to the era pre-YouTube, pre-functioning uh, internet of rumor mills and all that, it was about, I was 14, thereabouts, riding World of Motion by myself unloading and somebody stepped out and said hey do you want to come uh look at some concepts we have for what's coming next for this pavilion and this was a time where you know all of future world was kind of renewing itself and it was starting to happen but we had no idea that this was going to happen no and so i said sure and they said, you know, it's going to be about an hour or so. Took me upstairs to the VIP lounge, which was very exciting at that time. Again, you know, you couldn't go up there if you were a DVC member or what, you know, special events. It was just people who were affiliated with GM. But they were up there, so I got a great view of Future World. One of, I mean, the, the best view of Future World, really, is from that lounge. And uh, they proceeded to show some pitch reels of what was coming of test track and a, a giant post show area that never quite came to fruition. I, you know, we talked to on the live stream about they had a, a movie planned for, uh, Rosie O'Donnell and John Goodman, <laughs> uh, talking cars, I guess. I don't know, but, uh, give me some Disney dollars for it. And I had to go meet you all. So I couldn't stay till the end is before cell phones, but, uh, I got I got a great glimpse of of it all and didn't have to be surveyed about it. So it was interesting. And then, you know, of course, Test Track took forever to open. So I kind of knew the whole plot of the ride forever before it came out. And it was that's so wild to the T. It was just the same thing. That is so funny. Yeah, because it took so much longer to open than they thought and you know, when I was down there on college program, it was still in testing. It was supposed to have been open already, but it was still in testing and it wound up getting delayed and delayed. But yeah, I remember, you know, we had our pre-designated meetup time in Epcot and you showed up with fresh new Disney dollars and a story to tell. I was quite jealous because even just getting to go to the lounges back then was a unheard of opportunity. I mean, that and was the real coup. And, uh, I just remember being like, is Test Track the best name they could think of? Surely that'll change. I'll change that. <laughs> and here it still is. And, yeah, still it remains. Absolutely. So, yeah, that, that's just a little a little taste of what could have been with the with the blue-collar John Goodman, Rosie yes. O'Donnell. Oh, I, can, I can picture it. Yeah, it must have been an Eisner vehicle that didn't quite uh, pan out, but. Yeah, all of this has made me very wistful for World of Motion. I could just get right back on it. I feel like it would, you know, maybe you end up switching the post-show and the 
you know, update the future scene. You could still just have it be perfect. Absolutely. I, it's, I had always thought of journey to imagination as being the Epcot attraction that was truly timeless. That could have been there forever, but world of motion could have been as well. And mm-hmm. as you say, swap out the post show, I would probably swap out maybe the speed room films. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, that is just a small portion of the ride, a tiny portion of the ride and the rest of it, I mean, the rest of it would work just fine. I think mm-hmm. even the center core part with the futuristic city still would it's, look futuristic. Yeah, it's so abstract. It's, it wasn't very dated. I mean, that's true. Yeah. Right. Well, it, which was intentional. They kept pushing, uh, GM kept pushing it, like, make it more abstract, make it more abstract. And so I think they kind of got what they were going for there. So, yeah, this could have been a, a real timeless one for people to enjoy. but. Thankfully, it lives on in our memories. That's right. And thankfully, there's a lot of good footage of it up. Um, so people who didn't experience it can can do that. So it's lucky that this generation of great attractions is preserved, at least in that way. Exactly. And we have all the audio from it and the great narration by Gary Owens and all the music. And so we can like reconstruct the ride through pretty well. Right. Well, it's that time where we check in with our Patreon and see if anybody has signed up since our last episode. Michael, did anybody uh, sign up to our Patreon? Uh, Yes, we have a new member. We'd like to welcome Tom to the Patreon club. He'll, of course, be getting early access to episodes, a packet of Progress City goodies in the mail. And uh, at the $10 level, of course, you get access to our monthly live stream where we get together, have some rare photos and images and video, and have a really great hangout with a bunch of great people. It's it's a lot of fun. Always fun. Always fun. Yes. Always fun talking to everybody. And also, you get access to the Disney uh, library of like documents that I've scanned in and some other good stuff, some extra content, and it's all tax-deductible. So... You can join up at patreon.com slash progresscityusa. And we thank you so much. And thanks to everybody who joins in because uh, we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, it's always so much fun getting together with people and discussing. And, uh, you know, there's more on the way. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com or we're all obviously on Twitter. Michael's at progresscityusa and I'm at Jeff G Crawford. Now, Michael, what are we, what are we going to do next? Where are we going? Well, let me tell you, it's still a bit of a mystery, but <laughs> future's mysterious uh, like that. <laughs> the future is the future is always is it's always in emotion. The future, we cannot pay gaze beyond the, the curtain of the future. But uh, we are going to try and line up somebody who contributed to the world of motion, and hopefully that's who we'll be bringing to you next. What? If not, then I'll look silly and I'll be wrong. But I think that's what we're going to be bringing to you. Well, let's hope for that. And if not, we'll just move on to the next thing. Um, Because we got a list. I know. And, you know, if people, if there's something you want to hear about, email us. We, I, you know, we don't get enough of the emails from the people. We, we have our regulars that we see in chat on our live stream and on Twitter. But I know there are a lot of you out there that we'd really love to hear from. So drop us a line. So true. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, 
That will about do it for today as we head off into center core. I'm going to go get some blue milk or whatever they serve in there and uh, <laughs> get my little hover car and go off. And uh, we will see you next time with mystery guest or mystery topic. Uh, you're just going to have to stay tuned to your feed. And I sure hope you're subscribing to us because uh, otherwise, how would you know? So we'll look forward to seeing you next time. See you soon. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.